Hey, a quick note before we jump into this episode. Here at Leading Saints, we are trying to do more How I Lead interviews. Now, what's a How I Lead interview? You've probably heard them before. It's where we find everyday leaders around the world who are serving in one capacity or another, maybe an elders corps president, Relief Society president, the ward mission leader, high counselor, stake presidency counselor, so many different callings of leadership that we have in our faith tradition. And we like to sit down with them one-to-one and just say, how is it that you lead? Give us a few principles, put it into perspective. What's your area like? And these turn into phenomenal resources of best practices. And it's just always fun to hear what the other guy is doing. So if you know somebody who we could interview on the How I Lead segment, regardless of their calling, we would love to connect with them. Go to leadingsaints.org slash contact and send us the information, maybe get, give them a heads up, and we'd love to reach out to them, connect, and see if we can get them on the Leading Saints podcast for one of our How I Lead segments. Again, go to leadingsaints.org slash contact and send us the information. I'm Andrew Twig. I'm from Norfolk in the UK. I love listening to Leading Saints and, and listening to the podcast. It reminds me of a quote from my bishop recently where information leads to inspiration. And the more information we have, especially through all the various people on Leading Saints, that can lead then to inspiration. It enlarges our minds, it enlarges our abilities, our capabilities as leaders and our local wards. And for me, it's a resource that we can't do without. Hey, 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 welcome back to the Leading Saints podcast. My name is Kurt Frankham, your host as always. And I got to just, I, if, you, if you'll allow me, folks, I know many of you have been here a long time, listen to a lot of episodes, but there's some newbies in the room and I need to explain to them what Leading Saints is. We are a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping Latter-day Saints be better prepared to lead. And we do that by creating content, helpful content, I hope through this podcast, which you should subscribe and uh, leave a review. That'd be great. Uh, We have online articles at leadingsaints.org. You should subscribe to our newsletter there. Wonderful newsletter comes out every week that is quite popular. We have virtual summits and so many other ways that I can't think of right now. So we welcome you. We hope you jump in and binge many podcasts starting from this point. Now, in this episode, I talk with Professor Carrie Muelstein, who is in the Ancient Scripture Department religion department. I'm not sure how those departments work down there in Provo, but uh, he's a smart guy, all right? And uh, he recently came out with a book called God Will Prevail, Ancient Covenants, Modern Blessings, and the Gathering of Israel. And it is such a phenomenal read that I'd highly recommend. And he reached out to me to uh, jump on the podcast with me to talk about the concept of the Abrahamic covenant or the new and everlasting covenant. You know, what is it? How's it work? What do we need to understand about it? Is it just celestial marriage or what? And I think this is an important doctrine to, uh, you know, we don't have to be PhD scholars around it as leaders, but to have a good grasp on some of the components and definitions and ideas, because uh, we, many of you out there listening are key holders that uh, have to facilitate covenants or or, uh, ordinances that are related to covenants, and uh, which is awesome, but sometimes I remember even as a bishop, I didn't really understand fully what we were doing uh, with some of these these ordinances and covenants. And so we jump into it. We talk everything uh, from the sacrament to restricting the sacrament that, to what it means when somebody uh, loses their membership in the church and how that relates to the gift of the Holy Ghost and their communication with the divine. We talk about divorce and temple cancellation, you know, ceiling cancellations and what's that mean for the kids and on and on. Just really dug into some great concepts. You're going to enjoy it. Let's get into it. 
you've waited too long. So here's my interview with Professor Carrie Muelstein, the author of God Will Prevail. Hey everyone, we are live. This is Kurt Franklin with Leading Saints and uh, joined here today through the powers of the internet with uh, Professor Carrie Muelstein. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Very good. Well, I'm excited to have this discussion because these are having me on. Yeah. You know, digging into some of these doctrines that we sometimes in the restored church, we get in rhythms and we go through motions at times. And sometimes we fail to step back and (laughs) realize the phenomenal thing that's taking place in the eternities because of the restored keys and authority that we have. And so we're going to jump into the Abrahamic covenant, which you've done a lot of research on and obviously teach at at BYU about, and it all is connected to your recent book called God Will Prevail. Maybe just tell us the impetus of you writing and and putting this book together. Sure, I'm happy to. So I started teaching Old Testament at BYU almost 27 years ago. The first time I taught, first class I taught was first half of the Old Testament. So you hit Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant right away. And I found right away that most of my students really didn't, they, they knew, okay, this is important. I don't know, but they didn't fully get it. Right about that same time, President Nelson gave a talk here at BYU where he talked about being part of the covenant. And I thought, you know, we've got a disconnect here. Of course, he was not president then, but he was a, a, a member of the Quorum of the Twelve, that we've got a disconnect. Most of my students don't have any idea what it is. And we've got an apostle who says, this is important. You should know what it is. And he's not stopped that message since. He just keeps ramping it up, right? He talks about it more and more and more. And so for a long time, I've tried to figure out how to study and teach what that covenant is and and why it's relevant and why it's important. And I'd say it took kind of a step forward about seven years ago now when I was talking with, uh, well, I was on a a committee that involved seminaries and institutes and the three BYUs, and we were uh, working on some curriculum changes. And we, we talked about trying to incorporate elements of the new and everlasting or the Abrahamic covenant in in some of the classes and as we work with different teachers uh, we figured out the majority of the teachers at all of our institutions really kind of struggled with it themselves and one of them just uh, said uh, I, w- I won't say who because he didn't give me permission to use his, his name but a fairly influential person in religious education circles in the church said you know we have some educating to do and i thought well i, I guess that's that's my next task so i spent about six years really intensely trying to understand the Abrahamic covenant or the new and everlasting covenant. They're, they're really the same thing. And we can talk about that more if you want, but try to study that as carefully and as intensely as I could. And then I started writing some articles and I, I realized, okay, the articles go to a limited group, you know, a couple of weird academics will read these, but not most people. And what's more, they would have to piece together like 20 articles to get the bigger picture. I just need to read a book because the saints Seem, and, and especially after President Nelson started talking about the gathering of Israel is the most important cause on the earth today, right? And then I talk with youth or other adults about it, and uh, they say, yeah, but I, I don't get it. I thought, I just need to put this out there and make it available for everyone. If this, this affects our exaltation, in fact, I've often said this in class, that I say, I, I'm going to suggest if you're exalted, it's going to be within the Abrahamic covenant. And I, I suspect we all want to be exalted, right? It affects all of the ordinance. Every ordinance we do in the church is affected by this. These are, as you said, we're going through these motions and we need to stop and think, what are the, what's the big picture here? What is the exciting impact of this? And so that's why I tried to create the book so that, you know, in its subtitle, 
is ancient covenants, modern blessings, and the gathering of Israel. Because that's I, I want us to see how those ancient covenants tie in with the blessings we're receiving today and the cause that President Nelson has asked us to be involved in. Yeah, that's awesome. Wonderful. Now, we're doing this via Facebook Live here. So we have a good amount of people watching on Facebook. And so if individuals are out there watching, we would love, give us your, we want to send uh, Professor Muelstein your toughest questions around the Abrahamic covenant, the gathering of Israel, the new and everlasting covenant, all those types of things, especially in a leadership context. And that's where I want to go with some of our discussion is maybe you can give us just sort of an introduction on how you approach these these doctrines in your book. But then I want to to sort of trend towards a discussion of what does a leader need to know? Like per, a leader, a stake president who's preparing a, a young missionary to go on a mission and obviously go through the temple and these types of things. You know, sometimes it's like, you know, you fill out the recommend, yes, the questions and they're on their way. But, you know, and we have our temple prep class and, and those types of things. So maybe give us just a, a foundation to start from with beginning to understand these doctrines that you talk about in your book. I'm happy to do that. And I think it actually perfectly coincides with how it, it would work with the leader. So I think we can do both at exactly the okay, same time. Cool. So again, I've, I've seen people struggle to know, you know, what is the new and everlasting covenant? What is the Abrahamic covenant? I know I get baptized. I know that's a covenant. I know I renew that covenant at the sacrament. I go to the temple. I make covenants. I get married. I make, what do all these have to do with each other? Right. And we talk about the covenant path and we say, okay, I guess that means making covenants and keeping, but what is that? Right. And so it's helpful if people know that the new and everlasting covenant, so Joseph Smith teaches that that is a covenant that is first entered into before the world was even created by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, and that is their covenant that they will save mankind. And I don't know, right, so here I am just speculating, but I suspect that that covenant was presented to us in pre-mortality at what we call the, you know, uh, council in heaven. In any case, what we do know is that it is established with Adam and Eve when after they're cast out of the Garden of Eden, that they're given that at that point, it may not be called new. It might just be called the everlasting covenant, right? But every now and then it has to be renewed or reestablished. So we call it new and it is reestablished with Abraham. But at that point, there's a slight change where Abraham is told everyone who's part of that covenant will become part of the seed of Abraham, right? So every time it's reestablished, it's it's, you know, maybe the way it's administered and some of the details of it are tailored to the specific dispensation and group and people, right? But because everyone will be a descendant of Abraham, then we often, most often in the scriptures, it's referred to as the Abrahamic covenant, sometimes the new and everlasting covenant. So what, what we want people to understand, I'd say most members of the church, when they hear new and everlasting covenant, they think marriage. And that's true. Yeah. I was just going to ask you that question. Aid. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, uh, so, I mean, I've got this in the book where, I, I, you know, like Elder uh, Nash at one point says, no, that's a new and everlasting covenant. It's not the new and everlasting covenant. Mm -hmm. and, and same thing with baptism. It's a new and everlasting covenant. These are all stages or rungs. It rungs in the ladder, we could say, right? Or steps in the ladder in the Abrahamic or new and everlasting covenant. And so, for example, Brigham Young teaches we enter into the new and everlasting covenant of baptism. On multiple occasions, President Nelson has said we enter into the Abrahamic covenant of baptism. Well, that's because they're two names for the same thing. But that's part of where if we're going to talk about, especially for leaders, this is what we want people to know. When you get baptized, you're entering into not just the, this, you know, we think of baptismal covenant, okay, I'll be cleansed and I obey the commandments. But you're entering into something really pretty significant. Most eight-year-olds aren't going to be able to fully comprehend that. But I'll tell you, I think it's worthwhile. And, and I've done it. I, I, I teach eight-year-olds at the interview, at the baptismal font, 
you're entering into something pretty magnificent here. And you ought to think about this. You're becoming part of the house of Israel. You're entering into the Abrahamic covenant. And then, you know, we, we talk about, so what is the baptismal covenant? What should we teach them when we go to Mosiah 18? And we don't know really, 2 Nephi 31, we don't really know much where else to go. But when we realize it's the Abrahamic covenant, now, if we're willing to look through and find it, but that's still kind of difficult, so that's why I wrote a book. But we have a much larger set of things to teach them about when we say you're entering into the baptismal covenant. So, for example, I'll either, it, usually both in the interview and, and in the little talk of the font, I'll tell the eight-year-olds, okay, your primary obligation, you know, you can usually get them to say, yeah, I know I'm supposed to keep the commandments. Okay. So what's the first commandment? What's the primary commandment, the most important obligation of the Abrahamic covenant? It is love God, right? And then it's love your neighbor, which sounds a lot like Mosiah 18, come into the fold of God and bear one another's burdens, right? And so it's the same thing, but on a grander scale as we teach them as they enter into the baptismal covenant. Yeah. So I'm curious, like, especially with eight-year-olds, like, uh, how do you, as I don't know if we mentioned earlier, you're currently serving as a bishop, but how do you help the eight-year-old really experience on a deeper level the covenants that they're making rather than just sort of making it fun and grandma and grandpa's here and you're in white yeah. and here we go. Like anything else that you say that, that really helps that eight-year-old? You have to do some of both. And I find I'm often educating their, their parents and grandparents as much as I'm educating yeah. them, right? And, and, and usually the parents are part of the, the interview anyway. And so I do try and, uh, but it's it's great to tie it into these things. And you say, okay, look, you've got, Grandma and grandpa here. Right now it might only be on Zoom, but you know, yeah. they're there in some way. And this is great because they're part of this covenant too. And they're excited that you're joining a covenant with them. But now I want you to think it's not just grandma and grandpa or even great grandma and great grandpa. You're going back to great, 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 great grandpa Abraham and great, 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 great grandma Sarah. And <laughs> oh, you cool. are now part of this story. And then then and there's some stories that they're familiar with in the old testament that you can start to get them to feel like, oh, I'm when I do this, I'm becoming part of that. And they actually feel pretty cool about it. Like, wow. And I tell them, you just, when you do this and I hold up the Bible, which I have somewhere in here, but hold up the Bible. And I say, this is becoming your story right now. This is now family history and you are in the Bible now. And they, they actually feel that's pretty cool. Right? Yeah. Yeah. You're part but of that big story that, that we've learned about your whole life, you know? Yeah. So, but then I'll also try and teach them something you have to be, you know, you can kind of get this to them, but you're also trying to get it to their parents so that they can maybe work with them to understand this a little bit more. And we often talk about the symbolism right at baptism. Just okay, so you're you're being washed, you're being made clean, but you're also being buried in the in the watery grave and coming back up a new person. And that has to do. So this is if I could just get one message across from my book, it's that the covenant, its primary purpose, the biggest thing it's trying to accomplish is establishing a closer, higher relationship with God, right. which can only happen if we're both a, willing to bind ourselves to him. But B, just a, as with any relationship, you can't have a close relationship if you're on very unequal terms, right? My relationship with my children who are now either teenagers or young adults can be of a different nature than when they were two, Yeah, right? Now, it's, it's a close relationship when they're two, but it's a different kind of a, a, a closer relationship when we can really understand each other. Well, that's true with God as well. Mm. He has to change us to become more like him, to have a closer relationship with him. And eventually, 
our closest communion with him will be when we're exalted, which is the end result of the Abrahamic covenant, right? That's the end goal. When we're exalted, when we're made godly or Christ-like beings, then we can have that close relationship, right? So the point of the covenant is to be changed so that we can have a closer relationship with God. Well, that happens at baptism as much as it happens anywhere, right? At baptism, the idea is we're getting rid of the old person that's being buried in the, in the watery tomb. And when we come up, not only are we clean, but then we receive the Holy Ghost and the Holy Ghost changes who we are. So we really are becoming someone new. Now, that's somewhat able to understand. You can explain that a little bit to an eight-year-old, but their parents are going, oh. And then I tell the parents, now you need to keep teaching them this as they get older, help them to understand this more and more. But the idea is that our nature is being changed so you can be even closer with God. And the scriptures are pretty clear. We're all children of God. But but it talks about when you make a, this covenant that then you become in a different way. A, a, a son or a daughter of God, because you're now begotten of God in a different way and you have a different relationship. Yeah. And that's worth everyone in, in the room at, at the baptism understanding. And frankly, let's remember uh, again at the, the sacrament table, we're renewing the baptismal covenant. But as, as a few apostles put it, it's not just the baptismal covenant, it's all covenants. Well, that's because it's the Abrahamic or the new and everlasting covenant. We're doing that again, right? So I want my entire congregation to understand that when we partake of this sacrament, we are becoming again children of God in a new way. We're having our nature changed again to be more like him so that we can have a closer communion with him and so on. And I, I think it's significant to understand those things. It, it, I think you can be edified or sanctified more when you are thinking about that as you're going through that covenant renewal ceremony. Yeah, no, that's really helpful because a lot of times it's easy, you know, especially working with young children, it's easy to sort of oversimplify and there's nothing wrong with that, but to sort of create the, uh, explain the dynamic of you're sort of now, you're in the club now, you're a member of the church, which is true, yeah. but more focusing that, uh, no, you're, you're, you have the opportunity to change now. You have the opportunity to develop and, and grow and become like your father in heaven. Like this is the first step on that path, that covenant path to do that. And I think that really puts it in a more exciting and a more appropriate yeah. light that way. Um, I've, I've recently started using a little phrase that I think does that even more, right? And, okay. and I do find, I feel like at situations like uh, baptism that I've got a dual audience because I, I both want to teach the children, but I want to help the parents better be able to teach their children, right? So if we're going to talk about leadership positions, which I, I love the focus of this podcast on that, mm -hmm. there is no more important leadership, leadership position than mother and father. That's the most important leadership position, right? So mm -hmm. if we can help mother and father teach that child better for a while, then that's great. But but the phrase that the children get that kind of gets them excited, and I just, it's actually a nephew of mine who gave me the idea of using this phrase, is I tell them, you're leveling up, right? Mm -hmm. So this is a game idea that they get, and, and maybe our older audience won't know what that is, but as you finish a certain level on a video game, then you become bigger, stronger, faster, whatever. You have a greater ability to handle bigger challenges in the next level, right? And they call it leveling up. So I say, when you make this covenant and God changes your nature, you're leveling up. And then the next time you make more covenants, you're going to level up again. And I hope you level up every Sunday when you partake of the sacrament. And that's a phrase that they get. Um, yeah, that's cool. That describes, I think, pretty well what we're really talking about. Yeah, I love that. Talk to me a little bit in the context of baptism as far as the the gift of the Holy Ghost, because oftentimes what I've seen, I think what is tradition is, you know, maybe there's a member of the primary presidency there and, or, or someone gives a talk about the Holy Ghost and it's all in the context of like, you know, you, you gain this special friend and they'll be able to tell you what to do and not do. And, 
and which is great and fine, but I often feel like we miss it that, no, you now have the Holy Ghost, which can sanctify you. As you yeah. repent, it can cleanse your soul. I'm just curious on your approach, like understanding the new and everlasting covenant and what's taking place in a, in a baptism and in a confirmation. Is there a better way to maybe understand the confirmation of the Holy Ghost? Yeah, and, and again, you kind of have to, baptism is the tough place because you're, you're talking to an eight-year-old and an 80-year-old at the same time. But yeah, I think it's worth noting, again, all, I like to tie it into the Abrahamic Covenant. And I'll say, okay, you know what? Some of the most important blessings of the Abrahamic Covenant are that you become a holy person so that you can have a close relationship with God. Another one, and this is specifically promised, that, that God will direct Abraham or give him instructions how to act. Hmm. And so I say these, the gift of the Holy Ghost is crucial for both of those. So first of all, when you have the gift of the Holy Ghost, we're talking about a closer relationship with God, but we could say a closer relationship with the Godhead, right? It is a closer relationship with the Father. I think it's also a closer relationship with the Son, and that's going to begin with a much closer relationship with the Holy Ghost, who then makes the relationship with the other two more possible, right? So, but you immediately have a closer relationship with the Holy Ghost. So that's the friend part, right? Yeah, and, right. and that's worth talking about. Yeah. But th that friend is not just a friend that's, you know, your age that you can, you know, throw snowballs with. This is a friend who can help you become something different. This is a friend who can change you. This is the friend who, if you want to dunk the basketball, can lift you up high enough so you can dunk it, since you can't <laughs> do that on your own. Right? Yeah, I love that. Level right? up, that's, right? That's what this, yeah, that's right. That's what this friend can do. But what's more, this is a friend who gives you direction. This is a friend who tells you what you need to be doing and how to do it, which is, again, one of the promises of the Abrahamic covenant. Yeah. So I want to shift this a little bit, and it may seem like a big left turn, but one thing that leaders deal with is when, you know, membership restrictions, or even when somebody's membership is removed entirely, you see, I'm getting better without using that X word. So yeah, anyways, yeah. but... Yeah, well, all the terms have changed recently. I know, so, right? Yeah. We need the practice yeah. here. So, and I've heard it, some people, like I remember my time as a bishop interacting with some people who said like, well, I was, you know, I lost my membership in the church. And so my bishop or stake president, whoever explained to me that that cut me off from any inspiration or communication with the spirit. So I can't like, I can't hear the spirit. And that like, just kind of didn't sit well with me for a God who's full of grace, you know? And so we sometimes categorize the gift of the Holy Ghost as sort of the superpower that that's the only way you can hear God. But how would you better or explain this concept of the gift of the Holy Ghost in the context of maybe someone who loses it? Yeah, that's a, it's a great question. And maybe I'll, I'll, I'll do that by even taking a little bit bigger step back. All right. Okay. So built into the covenant is a cycle or a mechanism. All right. In fact, maybe we'll talk about something that touches on some stuff that I'm going to go, wait a minute. I, that's not how I usually think of this. But <laughs> so within the covenant, God wants to change us, right? Part of the way he changes us, as we've talked about, is the reception of the Holy Ghost, and which brings the atoning power of Christ into our lives to change our natures. Part of it is his teaching us how to act. And he's not only through the Holy Ghost, but he's given us a set of instructions how to act. We call them the commandments, right? So we have our part in changing our nature and becoming more holy. So holy, that's part of the covenant, right, is that you become a holy nation, um, a peculiar people. It means more godlike, less like this world, right? We could have a longer discussion on that, but that's the short of it. Yeah. More like God, less like this world. Part of that comes from not acting the way the world tells us to act, but acting the way God tells us to act, which is closer to the way God himself acts. Right. And part of that is from 
being changed, as we've talked about before. But let's talk about that that idea of keeping the commandments or knowing how to act, right? And remember, this comes stems from the first commandment. If you love me, keep my commandments, right? So when we love God, then naturally the next step is we keep all the rest of the commandments, right? And we could have a whole conversation just on what the word keep means. But in, in short, it means, you know, you're going to carefully guard this. It's right. not something that you're just doing. You're carefully guarding, protecting right. these commandments or the way you act in keeping these commandments. But when you keep the commandments for every time you're keeping the commandments, there is an associated blessing with it, right? This, we get this both in the Old Testament and the Doctrine and Covenants, right? The idea that, that there are blessings that it, within the covenant, there are blessings that come when you keep the commandment. What we often don't talk about, but it's a pretty prevalent theme in the Old Testament, is that there are what, what the Old Testament would call cursings. We don't like that word, so we don't see it, right? In fact, <laughs> scholars don't like it, so they say covenant benedictions and maledictions rather than blessings and cursings, but it's the same thing. Now, it's not a cursing as in, you know, like Harry Potter and throws the death curse at you or something like that. <laughs> right. But it is the word that's used. There are a couple of words for curses that are used in Hebrew. And the word for this one is along the lines of a natural consequence. Right? This is what naturally happens. But for every blessing, there is a corresponding cursing. So if the blessing is prosperity, when you break the covenant, then instead you get destitution. You become desolate. Right. So there's no no middle ground. I often say that once you've made a covenant, you've left neutral ground forever. You can't ever be back on neutral ground. You're either going to get the blessings and the cursings. Mm. That's it. Those are your options. But the point of the cursings, it's not just that and it is a reversal of the blessings and it is a natural consequence of it. But it's also God's mechanism for humbling us so that we'll remember him. Right. Because the problem is that. Well, let's put it this way. We should ask this question in general. Why does God work in covenants at all? Why not just give us the blessings, right? Hmm. I don't yeah. know all the answers for that, but I think part of it is that if just like if, if you spoil a child, that doesn't work out so well for the child. If God just gives us tons of blessings without it somehow being associated with them, pretty soon we start to think, hey, I'm pretty good. Look at how cool I am, right? And yeah. this is all because of how great I am. So he does it in a covenant context so that we will associate those blessings with him. The problem is sometimes even in that covenant context, we fail to do that. And we think that it's because we're all great, right? And so the solution to that is then I'll humble you. And then you'll remember that you need me. We often in the scriptures call this, well, at least in the Book of Mormon, we often call this the pride cycle, right? Mm -hmm. But I would say you see that cycle everywhere. And in other scriptures, it's more consciously connected with covenant. And it is in the Book of Mormon too. We just kind of have to look to it. So I actually prefer the term covenant corruption cycle, right? Because what happens is that we corrupt the covenant. We don't keep the covenant. And so God humbles us. And then when we keep it, he, he gives us the covenant blessings. When we don't, we get the covenant cursings and we just keep going through that. But it's built in there that we will automatically be humbled. But here's the fantastic thing. In so I said, when you uh, make the covenant, you leave neutral ground forever. Part of the covenant, part of this relationship with God is that there's a special kind of love and mercy available to those in a covenant that is not available in any other way. Just like in a marriage, there's a special kind of love and willingness to work with each other that's available that's not available outside of that marriage covenant, right? Mm, love that, yeah. So the, the Hebrew word is chesed. So once we experience God's chesed, it will never go away, meaning he will always give us another chance. So when you look at the, so there are two places in scripture where you get the most comprehensive list of covenant blessings. Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, where they just explain it all has to do with the covenant as it's administered at Mount Sinai. And they just explain, here are all the blessings that can come. But after the blessings, you get 
all the cursings that can come. Right? So you get this long mm -hmm. list of blessings, long list of cursings. And you would expect that that's where the whole thing ends, right? But no, after that, there's a section in chapter 26 in, in Deuteronomy, it gets its own couple chapters where it says, okay, but after you've experienced the cursings, I give you another chance. And there's always a chance to come back. I never stop working with you. In fact, what we call that is the gathering of Israel. Hmm. The gathering of Israel as a nation, the gathering of Israelite individuals, because God never stops working with Israel or Israelite individuals, even if and we happen to be right now in the middle of a 2,500-year humbling cycle with the, the scattered tribes, right? Mm -hmm. If it takes that long, it takes that long. God's going to do whatever it takes to bring Israel back. He's going to do whatever it takes to bring Israelite individuals back. So if someone has lost their full fellowship in the covenant, what they should remember is that we have a long history in the scriptures of Israelites losing covenant blessings and God still working with them and giving them directions to come back. So it mm -hmm. may not be that they have this constant companionship with the Holy Ghost, but the Holy Ghost is still going to tell them to repent. Yeah. It's still going to give them enough direction to get them back to him so that then they can get the rest of the blessings. And that is consistent, very consistently promised in the scriptures, God's willingness. In fact, I don't if you just study, for, like, again, we can go to the Old Testament, but you can see it in the Book of Mormon. You can see it all sorts of places. If you study the prophetic books, they have tons of warnings of all the bad stuff that's going to happen when you don't keep the covenant. Almost all of them end, not on that, but on, but I'm going to work with you and bring you back to me at some point. Yeah. And that's a promise that we can all rely on. And that's a beautiful promise. I love that so much. So w what I'm learning here, piecing together, is that we're, when we make covenants, we're off neutral ground, which I, I love that that framing of it. And then if we break those covenants, cursings may come. And these aren't necessarily like you said, they're not like God's throwing, throwing lightning bolts at us as a curse, but they're natural consequences that may come to pass because the covenant is not being upheld. But the, the holy that blessing, it's the vacuum of the blessing, as it were. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. It's yeah. designed to humble you. It's the, it has. A, it's not just punishment. It's punishment with a purpose that is designed to humble you and remind you of God. Right. But a leader could still say, you know, as somebody has maybe lost their membership or been uh, their fellowship in the church. I don't know the right words to use, but someone who's lost their membership, they can. A leader could still say, you do understand the Holy Ghost is still engaging with. You. It's not like yeah. he has left you hanging and you're on your own devices to figure life out like he will constantly be engaging with you to bring you back to the covenant that's exactly what god is trying to do and, and he'll use both the light of christ and the holy ghost to do yeah yeah really good really helpful anything about the oh here and this is the direction we go let's talk about the and again stepping back to the larger topic of the new and everlasting covenant the way i understand it like you said some people sort of misunderstand it, that the new and everlasting covenant is is uh celestial marriage, but that is just a new and everlasting covenant. But the new and everlasting covenant is the total sum of all covenants that we make. Is that a good way yeah, to say it? That's exactly. You can say it's God's promise to exalt us right. and everything else is, is a footnote. Great. Awesome. So let's talk in the context of, of sacrament and especially, and you can start wherever, but I'd like to go in the direction of the restriction of the sacrament. Cause I remember as a bishop, this was a heavy burden that I tried to figure out. And I don't know if I ever, I always made the right decision with it. And it so, can sort of feel like uh, you're a probation officer, right? Someone comes in, yeah. Hey Bishop, I looked at porn and it's happened a few times. Like, all right, uh, six weeks, you know, uh, six weeks, no sacrament. And you're sort of like, or maybe four, I don't know. Like, you know, sometimes you feel like you're, I think you're supposed to be punished for what you did. So I'm going to restrict this ordinance from you. But then at the same time, I'm thinking, well, wait a minute. Didn't, Christ suffer for all our sins. So why yeah. am I punishing this person? So we can kind of get lost in the weeds with this 
with this concept of sacrament and restricting. And so where do you want to begin with talking about the sacrament? I would say that the first place is to remember that it's a covenant renewal ceremony. And it's, it's a communal covenant renewal ceremony. So we can come back to that in a minute, the communal nature of the covenant, but it's a renewal. So one thing that is worth remembering is you probably don't want to renew that covenant when you're not keeping it. Yeah. That just gets you in more trouble, right? And so I, in my mind, that's the, the primary reason to restrict partaking of the sacrament is because you can't, you don't want to be saying, okay, I'm promising again that I'm keeping a covenant that I'm not keeping. Hmm. And so, so let me let's go back to let's go back to your uh, how you explained it where you're you've made a covenant so you're no longer on neutral ground but then yep. you broke the covenant but then you're trying to go like sort of back into that covenant when you're still sort of in the cursing right yeah and so you have to get yourself to I believe again and this is going to come through the atoning power of Christ right that when He has cleansed you and again re-sanctified you enough to be at that leveled up spot, then we're ready for renewing the covenant again. And then you're going to have one of your more significant experiences with partaking of the sacrament that you've had when you can say, you know what, I'm there again. I'm ready to really commit to keeping the covenant. I think God's really ready to sanctify me and change me to where I belong in that spot again. Yeah. So let's put it in the context of like a struggle with pornography. So maybe Mm -hmm. a, a return missionary comes in and he's he's struggling with pornography and you know it was an issue before his mission but he sort of got that cleaned up and went on a mission he came home and and so it sounds like as you're as a bishop or someone's engaging that person they're sort of saying seeing looking for some consistency in avoiding that thing if it's like uh yeah it's every other day like i wish i try to stop but i just can't and it's really a struggle that's maybe an indication they're not ready for the sacrament but once they have sort of re-engaged or put some things in place where they are consistently keeping, you know, that part of the covenant, then they can re-engage in the sacrament. Or, or how would you describe it? Yeah, I think that's a good description. Of course, we're going to have to be guided by the Spirit all the time. Right. Right. I, I personally, and I'm not the one who can say these things or make decisions, but I can personally one. see one person and another person who maybe from outward appearances, it seems like they're at about the same spot, but the spirit says this person needs to wait. This person's ready, right? Cause we don't know what's mm-hmm. going on in their hearts. Mm-hmm. So we're going to have to get that, that direction from the spirit. But I think it, it does always come down to the idea of covenant renewal and sanctification and whether you are really keeping the covenant or not. Yeah. And so what role, obviously that you're talking about the sacrament, having this renewal quality, right? You're renewing those covenants and repentance is, you know, it's a, the core of our doctrine, you know, the, the atonement. And, but sometimes it can sort of feel like that in order to keep the covenant, that means you're not repenting because that means you figured it out. So, so maybe somebody is, uh, you know, slipping up with pornography or whatever. But so what role does that play in helping them keep, stay engaged with the, yeah. with the covenant rather than a, a punishment? Well, this is an important thing for those who are struggling with pornography or even those who are struggling with something that's not so serious. And in fact, really, the last section of the last chapter of my book addresses this because we've got a couple of issues here. We've got some people who are, you know, uh, looking, as you say, looking at pornography every other day, but they feel like they're ready to protect the sacrament. And then we have someone who didn't do something for their ministering sister as many times as they should have this month. And so they're not going to let themselves partake of the sacrament, right? And we need to find that balance somewhere in there. And again, each person is going to have to get some inspiration for themselves. And in some cases, it's going to have to do the bishop also receiving inspiration. But there's a, 
there's an important element here. We have in the Doctrine and Covenants when it's talking about gifts that are available through the Spirit. And again, so I'll just say this. People struggle with recognizing that President Nelson has asked us to look for the blessings promised to Israel. I just October 2020 General Conference has said spend the next six months. We're right in the middle of that right now, getting towards the end, but looking for the blessings promised to, to Israel and talk about them with your friends and your neighbors and look for them in your life. Right. But I found that a lot of people struggle recognizing when the scriptures are talking about those blessings. So that's part of why this, I mean, I'd written the book actually before that, but it came out oh, after nice. that. So that's part of what this book is for us to help people with that. I've had so many people saying I'm struggling with this that I've put together. Uh, well, it's part of why I come on podcasts like this, or, yeah. uh, I put together a little brochure that is, I call it the quick and easy guide to the Abrahamic covenant, just to, to help people recognize that language. You could get that at my website I created just to help people with this called outofthedust.org. So that's outofthedust.org. But once people start to see these are the different elements of the covenant, then they can start to recognize, I think you'll start to find that the scriptures talk about it far more often than you think. And that's one of the things I love as a teacher or a lecturer is when people, students or other people come to me and they say, wow. I didn't realize, but I'm seeing the covenant everywhere now. All right. So one of those places will be when you're reading about the gifts of the spirit, if you've come to recognize covenant language, you'll recognize it's actually talking about the covenant there and that these are blessings available to people keeping the covenant. But the interesting thing is that at the end of that, it says that these blessings are available for those who are keeping the commandments or the covenant and him who seeketh so to do. Thank goodness for that line. <laughs> right. What it tells us is that the blessings of the covenant are not just for those who are perfectly keeping the covenant, which, by the way, is a sum total of zero, right? Christ is administering the covenant, so I guess he's keeping it, but in some ways he's, he's administering. Sometimes he's called the covenant, sometimes the messenger of the covenant. So I'm going to say we're going to put him in a different category. So for the rest of us that are covenanting with Christ, zero are keeping it perfectly, right? There are none of us. Yes. But there are a whole bunch who are seeking so to do. And so that's something that you know, someone who's struggling with addiction, whether it's pornography or something else, that's something they're going to have to try and wrestle with. Am I really seeking to do this or not? And someone who feels like they didn't visit their ministering family as often as they should have. That's the question they're going to have to ask themselves. Am I seeking to do so or not? But if you're seeking, if you're trying, the way I read that is, if you're giving this a good shot, right, you're really trying, then covenant blessings are still an option for you, right? Not just an option, they're going to come for you. You get the blessings of the covenant if you are just doing your best to keep it. And I think that's a really helpful thing for people on every end of the spectrum of whether we feel guilty or not. Everyone should realize that, well, and, and section 46 also makes it clear that this is because of the atoning power of Christ, right? So in the end, what we need to do is say, okay, I promised God that I would try and he promised me that he'd make up the difference and exalt me. I am trying. Now I'm going to believe because I'm in a, he has formally bound himself to me that if I can climb 10 feet up the mountain, he'll take me the other 10,000 feet. He, we're bound together. I'm strapped on his back and he can climb the mountain. He'll take me there. That's the great imagery that comes with the covenant, right? Is this idea of being bound together. And so if I'm seeking so to do, I can trust that Christ's atoning power will do the rest. Yeah, that's helpful. And so, you know, looking back to it with the sacrament that or the restriction of the sacrament, it's good to think of it as, as I'm learning here is that the the bishop or that priest or leaders is helping that individual keep the covenant, not necessarily 
helping that individual be punished for what they've done or helping that individual avoid damnation. Cause you know, you think of third Nephi 18 where, you know, anybody who partakes of this unworthily, you know, and that sort of can be a scary phrase that, Oh, well, what if I, what if they're not ready and I let them take the sacrament? So let's just default to not letting them take the sacrament type of thing. And then I really appreciate the emphasis of just following the spirit that there's not like a time period for each sin or, you know, this is individual by individual, one by one. That's how covenants typically work. And in order to help that individual keep the covenant, right? Yeah. And I would say it, we could maybe look at it this way. I, I, I believe that the primary role of a priesthood leader, and I'll just say when I say a priesthood leader, I mean someone who has been set apart by the power of the priesthood. All right. So this would include, and I'm basing this off of things that President Nelson has said recently and President Oaks and so on. I think that includes the, the Relief Society, right? She's set apart by the power of the priesthood. So we don't always mean that when we say priesthood leader, but that's what I'm meaning when I say this one. Great. love that. A priesthood leader is someone who is supposed to represent the Lord to the Lord's children. And so then I think, okay, what does the Lord do? Well, the Lord is always trying to get them to keep the covenant. Sometimes tough stuff has to happen, right? He can be pretty tough, right? If people don't want to do it the easy way, he will do it the hard way. But the point is, his goal is always to get people back into the covenant and keeping the covenant. And so that should be the role of leaders, I believe, is that our goal is to get people back in the covenant, keeping the covenant. Love that, man. That's so helpful. All right. Here's another left turn. But the one that's real, that the questions come at leaders a lot, especially, in, you know, well, in the context of the new and everlasting covenant, you know, it's a beautiful thing, especially as it reaches, you know, sealing powers and, you know, bonding us forever and these things. But uh, real life happens, divorce happens, ceiling cancellations happen. And that's when yeah. sometimes the bishop or somebody gets the, the technicality questions like, well, what does this mean? Like, okay, we're divorced, but you know, you get the distraught sister, like we're divorced and I just hate the guy and I, I want my, that, can, that ceiling canceled right away. So let's do that. Or, or does this mean that I'm gonna be forced to be with him because I'm divorced here, but we're still sealed? Or what, is, what about our kids and all those things? So. Where do you want to start with that uh, jumble of well, questions? For all the technicalities, I think we have to say, yeah, we don't know. Uh, yeah. I mean, we, yeah. I, we really just don't know. And I, I like to remind people that if we end up being exalted, so, you know, ceilings are only really efficacious if we're exalted. And I don't know that they're going to be any exalted beings that we really just can't stand. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Everyone else is pretty godly, but that godly guy, I really can't take. Right. Um, <laughs> And so I think we just have to recognize that there are a lot of things we don't know about the hereafter, and we don't know how a lot of things will work out, but we can be sure that if we're exalted, we're going to be pretty happy and, and, and we'll like it a little more. But the question of, I was, you know, so it is absolutely true that as you enter into the marriage covenant, you're entering more fully into the Abrahamic covenant. So each of these ordinances, as we said, is going more fully. So, and it's, it's pretty explicit that as you enter into the ceiling covenant, you're more fully in the Abrahamic covenant or the new and everlasting covenant. And so it's difficult to know what to do when that is broken. And I'll, I'll tell you this, uh, I mean, this is hard stuff, right? This is where yeah. we live. This is what it means a lot. And I, uh, some people who are as close to me as you can imagine are going through this right now. It's a hard, hard thing. And I don't know how to answer those questions, but what I believe is that the marriage covenant is a covenant between two people and God. And even if in some ways some of those people aren't keeping it, anyone who is doing their best to keep at least that part that is a covenant with God, that they're still, they still have a binding with God. And that's what we'll want to focus on. 
We can't control what's happening with other people, but we can control our relationship with God. In fact, I, I often teach my students, there's really not anything in your life you can control. You may think that your native intelligence or your good looks or your fun, bubbly personality is something you can control. And one good accident will change any and all of that. It can change your personality. It can change everything. There's only one thing you can completely control because there's only one thing that is completely consistent, and that is God. You can control your relationship with God. If you approach God, he's going to be there. And so that's true within a covenant, especially. He's already said, as, as we've talked about, that, well, so there's this beautiful verse in Isaiah chapter 54 that you may not recognize has that word chesed in it, that uh, covenantal kindness. But what he says is, or that covenantal love and mercy. But what he says is it is more likely that the mountains will depart than that his chesed or his covenantal love and mercy will depart from us. So what that means is once you are in this covenant with God, including that higher stage of it that comes with the sealing covenant, it is more likely that the Mount Everest or Mount Timpanogos packs up and walks away than it is that God's going to pack up and walk away from you. He's there. He's waiting. You just have to come to him. Yeah, that's awesome. Really good. So what would you say as far as in the context of of children, because uh, obviously you mentioned covenants are typically relational, re- you know, related, and uh, they're about relationship and binding relationships, especially between us and God. But you have a divorced couple who has kids, and you know, do they get sealed to, to mom and her new husband, or the dad and her his new wife, or you know, is it really that important? Do we just hope that they get sealed in the temple later on in life to their own spouse? Uh, any thoughts around the concept of children and being sealed? Yeah, I would say that sometimes we look at, at too small of a picture here. All right, so let me take you back. You remember I said that sometimes we don't recognize covenant language until we've learned enough about the covenant to start to recognize it, uh, which, again, is, is part of what I'm trying to do is help that to happen. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to tell you a verse that you've heard a whole bunch of times, and you probably didn't recognize it as a covenant verse. Although, maybe, because Elder Bednar and President Nelson have talked about it that way, but when we talk about Elijah coming to turn the hearts of the, the children to the fathers and the fathers to the children. Right? Mm-hmm. Now, let's put ourselves, Malachi is the first one to give this prophecy. Christ gives it to the Nephites. Put ourselves in their shoes, right? When you say promises to the, the or turn the hearts to the, the fathers, to an Israelite, including a Nephite Israelite, or Nephite or Lamanite Israelite, when they think fathers, they think Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For them, this is clearly a reference to the covenant. We may not recognize it that way, which is I, my personal opinion. I think that's why when Moroni comes to Joseph Smith, because this is a new audience, not really covenant attenuated audience like Israel or the Nephites, he changes it. And he says that Elijah will turn your hearts to the promises made to the fathers. That's 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 harder to mistake, right? Yeah. So for his yeah. new audience, he just made it. Okay, I don't want you to miss this. This is promises to the father. That's the covenant, right? So we usually think of this idea, the sealing keys that Elijah restores and turning our hearts to the fathers and so on as temple work. And it is, but it's, it's temple work in a larger context. It's the Abrahamic covenant. So what it is, and this is what President Nelson keeps talking to us about gathering. We want to gather everyone in to Israel, or in other words, have them make covenants that seal them, not just to, although it's certainly important that they're sealed to their, their spouse and children, but to the entire house of Israel, right? This is a big, grand, sweeping story. And the idea is when, when you're doing your family history work, do family history work for great-grandma Mildred, 
and for great, great, great grandma, Sarah, right? You're getting tied in to both of them and you want us all tied together. And it is a big, big family that's being sealed together, that's being bound together in this covenant. That's what gathering Israel is. And President Nelson keeps telling us, do this work on either side of the veil because that's how you're gathering Israel. You're getting them to be part of this covenant, right? Mm-hmm. So at this point, we're talking about, okay, what about these children? Who are they sealed to? Well, I don't know who they're going to be sealed to in a little short way in the hereafter, and I'm not sure how much that, that will matter, and I don't want to discount that, right? I am supremely yeah. grateful to be uh, sealed to my children, supremely grateful to be sealed to my parents, that one of whom I've lost, and I am so glad that I have a link with him that I'll see him again, right? Right. But one way or the other, all of Israel is going to be bound together. So if these are my children and whatever happens with ceilings here and there, I'm going to be sealed to them, right? If I'm part of the Abrahamic covenant and they're part of the Abrahamic covenant, we're going to have a connection. They are my children. I'm not too worried about that, how that works out. We'll be family together in the year after. All right. I don't, I don't care if it goes this way or this way to get us sealed together. We're going to be sealed together and they are my children. So we'll be family. Of that. And again, and it's sort of like you can go back to that. These ceilings are important, but the, the main goal is just to get everybody sealed into this Abrahamic covenant, not necessarily get everybody sealed to the, the mom they love or the dad they love. Uh, I mean, that's sort of secondary to it, maybe. Yeah, yeah. And it will happen. I mean, that will work out. But it, right. the reason we can be sure it works out is because it's part of this larger framework, this larger story and picture. Yeah. So uh, talk to me about the New Everlasting Covenant or the Abrahamic Covenant in the context of this phrase that's almost been become cliche in the church of families can be together forever. And I feel like we've used it so much that we've turned it into a, a doctrine of geography rather a doctrine of exaltation where like we, if you don't live right, or if, you know, my second son rebels and he goes and lives a, you know, a wildlife and doesn't engage in the, the covenant, then there'll be this empty chair and tape, this empty yeah. chair in heaven with our family. And that just makes me so sad because I want to be with him. And I'm thinking like, where does it say that if someone doesn't keep the covenant, that they'll have to live really, really far away and can't engage with, with the family. So, and maybe I'm wrong. I don't know, but what do you have to say as far as this concept of families can be together forever? And what does that mean? Yeah. And I'll just say, I think we know so little of what the hereafter is like that it's hard for us to um, have any pictures that are accurate. So there, there's a part of me that loves that bunch of chairs and no empty chairs. I mentioned there's part of me that hates it. Right. It's compelling. And I love the idea of having my family gathered around me like that. And yet the image of the empty chair is, is a specter that no one wants to even think of or look at. Right. And then I start to think, well, I mean, if we're going to talk about like travel or space or time in the hereafter, I don't think we get how any of that works. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I, personally, I don't think we experience time the same way there that we do here. Right. I get confused when I watch something like Interstellar or Flash or whatever else, right? That, yeah. that confuses me. But I think God doesn't experience time the way we do. I think he doesn't experience space the way we do. He's not the kind of being that we are able to, to fully conceive of. So in the end, we just have to say, okay, I don't know what it means to be together because probably, or even communicate. Listen, I don't think he communicates in any way that we are really familiar with. Sometimes we get glimpses of it through the impressions of the spirit, right? But I suspect that there's something much better even than any of us have experienced for the ability to communicate there. And it probably doesn't rely on space and time the way we do, right? So I love being 
in person with my children. But I have to say, like in the last year, we've learned that in person can sometimes be pretty good via Zoom or yeah. FaceTime or whatever <laughs> else, right? It's not as good as in person, but it's pretty good. But I suspect that whatever it is we do in heaven is better than even in person. And it doesn't matter if you're in the same place or anything else. So in the end, I, first of all, we have to say, I don't know what it means to be together. It's better than anything we've thought of or experienced. Second, we need to remember this idea that God isn't going to stop working with people. So, for example, I just finished teaching in my uh, Old Testament class and my Pearl of Great Prize class about Noah and the destruction of the days of Noah. And these are pretty guy, bad guys. We go through and, and look at the verses that describe the situation. This is pretty bad stuff happening, right? And yet we know that in the spirit world, that's where Christ goes and where he organizes missionary work for is for the spirits that died in the flood because they were so wicked. So I have to think if God is going to give them another chance, that anyone who has in some way been involved with this covenant is going to get some pretty decent chances. And I would guess that God's probably pretty good at what he does. So I'm not saying that there's a blanket statement, everyone will be exalted. Clearly, that's not true. And people have their agency. But I do think that everyone who's been part of a covenant, well, I'll just put it this way. I quote the title of a, of a guy whose office is right across from mine. Odds are you'll be exalted. Is a book, right? I think odds are you don't have to worry so much. Right. Right. Now, that doesn't mean give up. I don't want them to go through the misery. I don't want to take the chance, first of all. And I don't want them to go through the misery that you go through when you're not keeping the covenant. Covenant blessings are better than covenant cursings. I want the blessings part for me and my family. But I also think it's worth remembering that God's going to work with them in this world and on the other side of the veil in ways that we don't know or understand. And I'm just going to trust in him. Yeah, that's good. And and really... That's such a hopeful, grace-filled message, and, it, and hopefully it doesn't leave much room for people to sort of, you know, mourn over those that maybe have stepped away from the gospel and their family, but just realize, isn't it beautiful that God is still engaging with them in some way? Like, he'll still show up for them, and whether it's this life or the next, he'll still be after their heart, you know, and, and inviting them back into the covenant path. Yep. There's always hope. There's always hope. I love that. So one thing, you know, that sort of we, we just touched on is this, the concept of grace and covenants, you know, the law of justification uh, and sanctification. And mm -hmm. I had this holy envy at times for our evangelical brothers and sisters who just sometimes they just nail grace. I mean, you just love yeah. it. I just want to be at their church. I just want to feel yeah. the love and so accepting. Right. And sometimes they can misinterpret our covenant tradition like, whoa, like, hey, what's with all the the hoops that you're jumping through, right? And, yeah. and at the same time, like, no, 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 like, you got to understand, like, this is remarkable stuff. It's not that we're earning it, but we are, we're trying to become sanctified, become more like God. It's beautiful, right? And so how do we best, especially in the last few decades where grace is sort of, the doctrine of grace has sort of surged in our faith tradition a little bit, with it, which is great. Yeah. Because it's such a, I mean, it's so helpful, at least, at least in my personal journey of faith. So how do we approach grace and covenants in the right light? Because sometimes we can say, you know, sort of wink at grace, like, yeah, isn't grace wonderful? But hey, make sure you do these things because we got a covenant path to follow here. And then you sort of lose the grace. It sort of sucks the grace out of the room a little bit. Any thoughts on, on balancing grace and covenants? Yeah, and that's a little bit like I said when I was talking about, you know, him that seeketh so to do, and that idea that it is what I try and end my book on, uh, it touches on that. But maybe we can just summarize it kind of quickly yeah. by saying grace is available to everyone, 
but it cannot have its full effects with someone who does not choose to make a form a binding relationship with God. It just can't happen. And so, again, well, it's, it's worth thinking about this, that God wants everyone to be part of the covenant. Now, this is not an exclusive covenant. This is an, an inclusive covenant. He's doing everything he can. He's having us do everything we can to get people to join the covenant well, on this side of the veil, and we're doing every bit as much to get them to join on the other side of the veil, right? We want you dead or alive. We just want everyone to be part of this covenant. Yeah. There's only one way to be excluded from the covenant, and it's for you to choose to exclude yourself from the covenant, right? So grace is available, but it's available when you have bound yourself to Christ. So let's, that, that's not to say that people who are not part of the covenant right now never experience grace. Right. Let me just say exalting grace hmm. is available only to those who have bound themselves to God through his son, Jesus Christ. And that's the relationship that allows the kind of reliance and trust that then allows grace to fully enter us. And part of this is that grace can only have its fullest effect. So we say grace, I'll say it a different way. The atoning power of Christ's sacrifice grace and, and that that's the same thing the atoning power of christ's sacrifice can really only enter into me if i am willing to submit myself to it i have to allow it right if i fight it if i say i'm not changing then i'm not changing no matter how much christ has the ability to change me so let's contrast two things i often say to my students you know the students will think well i've done too many things wrong i, I no you don't have the ability to sin more than Christ has the ability to forgive. You can't overpower the atonement. You just don't have it in you, right? You're no match for the atonement. You can't sin more than he can take care of it. Love that, yeah. But at the same time, you can say, no, I'm not allowing you to change me. That's the agency that God has given you. In the end, that's where true agency is, right? You could be put in prison so that you don't have the choice of whether I am tied up and in solitary confinement or whatever else. So you don't have the choice of whether you're going to stand or sit. You don't have the choice of what, what you're going to eat or anything. You may not have any of those choices, but you still have the agency to say, I am letting God change me or I am not. That's the ultimate form of right. agency, right? And so you can choose to exclude yourself from that relationship that will change you or not. If you allow that relationship, then eventually it will change you if you're just seeking so to do. Love it. So I got uh, one more question for you, but before we, uh, before I ask that, where would you send people they want to check out the book or, and, and read it and dive more into these concepts you've discussed? So you can get it at, at just about, it's on Siegel Bookstore. So it's in, it's in bookstores, Desert Book, Siegel Book. You can get it at Siegel Bookstore online, Desert Bookstore online. There you can also get like the audio version. You can get a Kindle version on Amazon or the hardback. They didn't get it in for forever, but I think just yesterday. So it's been out for more than a month before they finally got it at Amazon. But you can get it at Amazon. So you can get it any of those places. I've got links. Again, if you want to go to, to my website, outofthedust.org, you can get both that little brochure, that quick and easy pamphlet, or I've got the links to all the different kinds of versions that you can get there. And I have links to, like, I'll have a link to this podcast, but other things that I've written or done to help people understand this. So that's where uh, you can go almost anywhere to get it. Perfect. Well, the last question I have is uh, related to your personal experience as a leader in the church. And as you reflect on your time as a leader, and both as a bishop and maybe other roles you've had, how has being a leader helped you become a better follower of Jesus Christ? That's a great uh, and profound question. So 
I think it has to do with what I talked about earlier is to remember that a leader is supposed to represent Christ. And the only way you can do that is if you come to better and better understand who he is and yield yourself to him and try and see things the way he does. So maybe I can just end on on this, uh, maybe a little story. And this ties back in with the covenant yeah, as well and, and so on. We didn't spend a lot of time talking about this, but there's a real communal nature to the covenant. The covenant to bear one another's burdens, as we said, or to serve each other. Right? That it's, it's not just a covenant with God, it's a covenant with each other. And in essence, part of that covenant is we've got to forget about ourselves and help each other. We've got to love our neighbors ourselves. We've got to share the covenant. That's part of the covenant. We share, spread the covenant or the gospel. Right? We have to quit thinking about ourselves and start thinking about each other. So I actually had an experience, and, I, and I'll, I'll, this is a confession, really. I'm embarrassed and ashamed that I didn't have this experience until about two weeks ago, because I have taught what I just said for a long time. Forget about yourself. Think about others. You know, if you're focusing on sanctifying yourself, that won't sanctify yourself as much as if you're focusing on trying to sanctify others, because you have to get sanctified yourself to sanctify others. Right? Just forget about yourself and go do things for others. And I've taught that for so long. But I'll tell you that every time I partake of the sacrament, Besides for the recent past that I also am always looking, you know, it's a little harder actually to have a really reverent sacrament experience when you're the bishop because you're making sure they said the prayers right and making sure everyone got the sacrament <laughs> and stuff. Yeah. But I still try and make time to, to pray. And, and I think about the prayers and it talks about us being sanctified, right? And so I usually pray and I, I try and, and repent and thank God for what his son has done and for setting the example and for sacrificing himself and ask for that atoning sacrifice to be applied to me. And so on. But the other Sunday was board conference. And I've been talking about how we needed to really help sanctify each other. It's the first time I used this leveled up phrase and so on. And somehow, as I was taking of the sacrament that time, and I looked out and I was thinking of all the different people with all sorts of different challenges in the ward. And this is the kind of thing that sometimes happens, I think, because of a mantle of a calling. My heart was just overcome with the desire for them to be sanctified, which I just finish talking to them about, right? Because right now we do sacrament after talks. Yeah. So, and I was overwhelmed with the desire. And instead of praying for the Savior to sanctify me, I was praying for the Savior to sanctify them. And there was part of me that thought, why haven't you done this every week? Why haven't you been asking for others to be sanctified more than yourself every single week? And I suddenly realized, of course, that's what Christ does. Christ is trying to sanctify everyone here. And if I want to be Christ-like, that needs to be my concern as well. That concludes my interview with Professor Kerry Mulstein. Really appreciate his willingness to come on and, and let me throw some questions at him. You know, these were, I don't know, I felt like they were tough questions. And uh, he didn't even break a sweat. He just handled them great. And I learned so much in some of the way he, he frames things, especially how to explain them to to young kids or other adults and man i was blessed by this interview i hope you were too and i'd be curious to know what other topics what other tough questions do you come across as a leader that maybe aren't directly outlined in the, the handbooks or the scriptures and you're thinking i don't know about this but when we have a scholar from byu on to who's you know dug into some of these concepts and doctrines and has figured out a better way to articulate them let me know what tough questions do you have as a leader, especially those related to doctrines, that I could reach out to a BYU professor or other scholars and individuals to better understand these things. Then you can move forward with the remarkable keys or authority that you may have as a leader or even just as a parent 
and uh, lead better, right? And explain the mission and the concept of, of these doctrines that bless our lives in so many ways. So go to leadingsaints.org slash contact, and there you can send me a message uh, with those, those things or any other ideas on potential interviews. And remember, if you know someone who'd be a great fit for the How I Lead segment, go to leadingsaints.org slash contact and submit your suggestion. It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when the declaration was made concerning the own and only true and living church upon the face of the earth, we were immediately put in a position of loneliness, the loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away, and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability.